You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. John Wertheim here is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We're all catching our breath after the 2020 U.S. Open. No one more so than our first guest. Why, you ask? It's Dominic Team, your men's winner. Uh, he stopped by for what I thought was really quite an extraordinary conversation, especially given the circumstances. After that, we speak with Dr. Sion Bylock. She's the president of Barnard here in New York. She's also, though, a cognitive scientist and a world expert on choking. So given the events of the week, we wanted to get her take. So it is a double, but first our champ from singles. Here's Dominic Team. I, I didn't have time yet to, to reflect on, on this incredible match, on that, uh, on that win that I'm a Grand Slam champion now. It's, it's unreal to me still. And also yesterday we went straight uh, to the hotel after all the press, um, had some dinner together and then I, I didn't sleep one second. So was not able to reflect, but I guess that's coming the next days. I was going to say, I, uh, I guess you're, you pulled an all-nighter, as we say. H- how do you celebrate a major during lockdown? This is a new one. H- how do you celebrate when you can't exactly uh, go to Manhattan and go crazy? Honestly, we I had pizza with my team in the hotel room, and then we were just chilling, talking about the previous four weeks, about the tournament. And I think that I wouldn't have done it differently when everything would be normal because I was shattered, the team was as well. And the big party is coming in Vienna when I'm back home. Say, wait, wait till you get home. Um, what effect do you think it had on you not having fans there? It was tough for everybody, I guess, because the fans, the full stadium gives you so much energy, positive energy. Uh, You can rely on them. Uh, You can, yeah, you can rely on them. They will carry you 
through tough situations, carry you through when you feel flat and all this falls away. Um, of course, the, the teams, they put a huge effort, but it's only three people. And so this was really tough to all the time bring the energy yourself, uh, push yourself all the time. Uh, it's, it was a unique situation and probably even tougher than when the stadium is full. In the moment, are, are you aware of, of just how crazy, crazy a match this is? I mean, are, are you aware of, of all these wild swings? I am, yeah. I mean, usually I, I really remember most of the details in, in every match. And first four sets already were kind of strange, but then the fifth set, I never experienced something like that before. It was so weird such a big drama um he was up i was up he served for the match i served for the match and we were ending up in the tie break um with all the years we know each other with the friendship we share the, the journey has brought us super long to a grand slam finals and then we battle it out in a fifth set tie break it's just so crazy and well i guess i was the luckier one yesterday it's normal to, to feel pressure before big matches. Did, did you know how intense the pressure was before you got out there? I mean, did, did you know before you hit the first ball that, that you were really nervous? No, um, usually I, or most of the times I, I find the perfect mix between too nervous and uh, not enough nervous, which is necessary. Yesterday, I just didn't find it. Uh, I was feeling really good at the warm up. I was hitting the ball very clean, very good, um, didn't have any pain, was fully fit. And then I go out and suddenly I, I feel so nervous, so tight. Arms are heavy, legs are heavy. I cannot really play my real tennis. And uh, that was tough. And then all of a sudden, or, or even I think it was only one out of 15, I'm, I'm zero two sets down. And what are you telling yourself after that? I was telling myself, I was hoping that I free up at one point. And then I was telling myself, well, this is a major final uh, fight for every point. Doesn't matter what happened. It cannot get way worse than that. And um, just hoping that also your opponent gives you something because he was playing very, very good at the beginning, serving amazing, playing solid from the back. And uh, then maybe he gave me a little bit, maybe one double fold or, or some easy mistakes on the baseline. I broke him back in the third and that was the moment where I freed up and when it became a good match. My, my German is not so good and I was reading this and maybe mistranslated it, but did, did you say that it, it may have been a disadvantage that you had played in, in three major finals before this? Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, uh, experience is one thing, but the other thing is that slowly, I mean, one lost major finals is fine. A second one as well, especially if it's a good match against Rafa on clay. But then the third one was very painful against Novak in Australia. I, I had the chances and for the first time I was getting pretty close to it. I had the feeling and... 
then you are zero three in major finals and it's getting to your head slowly and uh, it's it's just I was just there was the, the pressure was growing in myself and uh, before this tournament I said to myself is there another chance coming another chance for the title and that was made it really difficult and that's why I had so much pressure and um, for Sasha it was the first uh, slam finals and maybe that's a little bit easier I mean I, I don't know how he feels I cannot look into his head but uh, yeah I, I had a feeling that for me it was very tough to go in there and to, to play my, my free tennis Really? That's really interesting even before the tournament you were telling yourself what an opportunity this is yeah, of course. I mean, <clears throat> I, I told myself it's it's another great opportunity, and then um, I I didn't wanna say it to anybody. I didn't even wanna say it myself. But still, it was hundred percent the case that in the back of my head, and also of the other players, when Novak was out, the the chances for a first Grand Slam title were increasing, mm -hmm. uh, definitely. And that was another detail of what, what made the pressure grow, growing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I'm imagining American fans, sports fans, watching the tennis yesterday and saying there's, there's only one guy on the court serving. Where's the other player? I, I want to ask you about your, uh, your, your laughing. Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask you about your, your positioning on the return. W was that in, intentional before the match or were you making adjustments within the match? No, before the match, I, I thought that I'm going to try out, try to return close to the baseline, try to return far back. And then I had the feeling that I had just more chances to get this huge surf back when I stand four or five meters behind the baseline. And that was the reason. I still want to go back to what you said about this opportunity. And I'm trying to put myself in your position. You've dedicated your whole life to this sport. You've been a top five player for many, many years. What is it like taking the court with this defining moment ahead of you? I mean, help us understand that because it's something that none of us will ever understand. It's not a nice feeling, that's for sure. But uh, no, that's that's the tough thing. I'm, I'm really, or before yesterday, I was really proud of my career and probably I also achieved way more than I ever expected as a, as a kid or as a, 
teenager. But from the moment on, I realized that maybe one day I could win a major. Um, I, this was my biggest goal I had. And uh, it, it's worth more to me than, than being number one or to win any other tournament. So it was just in my head that to really have a career I can be satisfied with, I have to win this, this major title. And uh, that just made it a uh, huge pressure for me. And that's what made it not nice to, to walk into that final. And you go to another major in less than two weeks from now. How are you physically? How are you spiritually? What, what, what do you think uh, your sort of stamina will be like mentally and physically with, with another major coming up? Physically, I'm going to be fine. I, I will recover. I feel not so bad today, actually. The, the thing I don't know how I digest it emotionally, mentally, because like a big title, big achievement like that never happened to me before. But I also hope that this title gives me a huge confidence boost. And I also hope that this title lets me play more free again somehow in, in Grand Slams because the, the last, I don't know, 10 Grand Slams since I had the feeling that I can really make it, I was approaching with, with huge pressure to myself, from myself to myself. And I think that it's going to be very good for my tennis if, if I play a little bit more free. And I hope this title from yesterday helps me do that. And I'm, I'm looking forward a lot to the French Open. When do you think you'll watch the final? When do, when do you think you'll let yourself watch that match? It's going to take a while. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> um, I don't want to watch it in the next days. Um, gonna relax sit back and watch rome watch um, watch some great tennis there but definitely not the final it was too much drama and uh need a little bit time to reflect on it uh, but then in like a few weeks or a few months i'm gonna watch it so let, let me ask a final question which is that this was obviously a, a crazy event and there was a bubble and a layoff and no fans what did you learn about yourself? I mean, what, what lessons do you take away from this event, having the trophy right there behind you that we can see? What do you take away from this, given, given how crazy this entire tournament was? Um, I'm, I'm really happy with myself because I was not feeling great when I, when I came here. It was a new situation. It was tough. I played a horrible match at the Western and Southern Open. And then I, I had some rough days, you know, because usually when you lose a match, you just go on the plane and go to the next city and you are distracted. But here you just continue in the bubble. So that was not easy. But, and I, I also had horrible practices until Friday before the Open started. And I'm, I'm super happy with myself how I turned all this situation around, how... I started to play great tennis when, when it really counted the most. And um, that if I want to be, I can be really strong in my head. That's what I also realized in the two weeks during the US Open. So many things I learned about myself and, and I'm happy that I was able to experience all that.
Congratulations again. When you return next year to defend, I hope there are 20,000 people uh, cheering for you and, and not a bunch of virtual images. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Dominic Team. Uh, interesting insight. I feel like we caught him in that sweet spot where he, he had a day, so he wasn't on autopilot after uh, a five-set match, but he also sort of was sufficiently fresh, so uh, we had some, some real emotion. I thought that was very very interesting points, especially about pressure. Let's take a break now. A word about our sponsor. Exciting news for fans of Beyond the Baseline and Pro Staff Rackets. Wilson has just released the latest, greatest Pro Staff V13 and we have an offer for our listeners. When ordering this awesome new racket on Wilson.com, Beyond the Baseline listeners should use the code BAGTHEBAG, B-A-G-T-H-E-B-A-G, BAGTHEBAG, and they will get an exclusive gift with purchase of a red, white, and blue Wilson brand duffel. Visit Wilson.com slash ProStaff. Use the code BAGTHEBAG to purchase. Hurry up. Supplies are limited for this $50 gift with purchase. All right, a tennis sponsor. I love it. Um, again, really interesting to hear from Dominic Team. That was, I thought, extraordinarily candid, uh, especially a, d- a day after winning his first major. Interesting to hear him talk, especially about pressure and uh, cop to it. And speaking of pressure, our next guest has made it a focus of her scholarship. Sian Bylock is president of Barnard, but she's also one of the leading scholars on performance. She's author of the book that uh, we read when it came out maybe eight years ago, Choke. What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To. A uh, great readable book about choking, one of those topics that we all love to discuss uh, and yet is a profane term in sports. So uh, this is a great conversation. We talk about pressure, about the absence of fans at the U.S. Open. I wanted to get Dr. Bylock on to talk about that, what it was like playing without fans. But then, of course, we had a final with two nervous participants, one of them serving for the title at 5-3 and couldn't close. So it was particularly relevant here. uh, Thanks to the guest is a really, I thought, entertaining and informative discussion about pressure and sports and identity and sports psychology. Here is Dr. Sian Bailak. Thanks so much, Dr. Bailak. It's a pleasure to have you on. We've been talking about doing this for a while and uh, we we sure timed this well, didn't we? Yeah, it's great to be here. (laughs) Yes, some epic sports. Over okay. the so I, initially, I thought you'd be great to talk about athletes performing in front of no crowds, and, and let's do that. But I also, you know, we're, we're 12, 12 hours or so after a, um, a, a match that contained its share of choking, which is your, uh, your, your area of expertise. Um, I, I just, what, what the hell happened? I mean, let's just sort of start general. I mean, I will say that a lot of people are asking the question, does this U.S. Open, is it different than every other, right? And um, when conditions are really different, it can affect how people play. Uh, And I think we saw some of that play. We've seen that playing out throughout the Open. Um, And I think we really saw it playing out last night. Can we just, I mean, the most basic question, you you want to define choking for us. I mean, your, your, your book is called Choke. Your Twitter bio, in addition to uh, being president of a major university, you talk about, I mean, clearly this is a, a subject uh, you've given great thought to. I mean, before we even go further, you just want to define it for us? Yeah. I mean, choking is uh, not just poor performance. Like, we all have ups and downs. But what we talk about choking, um, what we're talking about is worse performance than expected, given what you can do, your skill level precisely because there's something on the line. Either you want to perform well, or people are watching you, or there's a lot of pressure, or um, there's there's some prize associated with how you do. 
And um, we often talk about choking in major sports, and I think we saw a great example of that yesterday um, in the Open finals, but um, you can choke in anything, right? I mean, sometimes we choke when we have to introduce ourselves to someone and can't get the words out, right? We're usually pretty good at doing that. Um, you know, for me, it's parallel parking when my friends are watching. Like, there's anything that you're good at that all of a sudden you can't do when things are happening, people are watching. Um, you know, something's on the line can be an example of that. So, we can practice public speaking. You, you could probably practice parallel parking, uh, though the, the friend's presence is different. But, you know, there's no, there's no simulating, hey, it's a Grand Slam final and Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic aren't here and the outcome of this match is going to literally define you for the rest of your life. Even before we get to the court, how, how do athletes prepare for them? I mean, how, how do you replicate this? Before, before you even step on the court, how do you prepare yourself? Yeah, well, I think you're hitting on something really important just to begin with that not everyone thinks about is that you actually have to try and practice under conditions that are close to what you're going to perform under. You're not going to get all the way there, but oftentimes people don't practice. Like, um, for example, giving a presentation, people look at their notes, but they don't tend to practice in front of others or even in front of a mirror. I tell people to videotape themselves, turn their computer camera on and videotape themselves. Anything that gets you used to the kinds of nervousness you're going to feel in the actual situation. Um, or when taking a test, like students study their notes, but they don't actually practice in conditions they're, they're going to be tested under, timed with other people around or someone watching, it matters. Um, so that's a real key. But of course, it's hard to simulate exactly what it's going to be like. And it's one of the reasons we love sports so much. If there's an unexpected element, right? It's not always the one who has the most skill or raw talent that is the, the victor. It's, success in sports is about pulling out your best performance when it matters. And that when it matters is the whole psychological aspect. And that's really what I've spent my career interested in because it's, it's harder to train. One of the things you write is what, what's going on in your head really matters. So, so what, what is going on in your head when you start to choke? Oftentimes when you're doing something you know really well, um, something counterintuitive happens. You actually start paying too much attention to what you're doing. You become really self-conscious and you disrupt what would be a fluid performance. And the example I like to give is imagine you're shuffling down the stairs and I ask you what you're doing with your knee. There's a good chance you'd fall on your face, right? You don't think about your knee, it's automatic. Um, but if I ask you to think about it, it, actually paying attention to something takes time and it's slow and it's an arduous process. Um, and when we're performing at our best, we're in this state where everything just sort of clicks. If you reflect on that, you're often not paying attention to everything you're doing. You're just, you're in the zone, people talk about it, or you're playing at your best. Oftentimes athletes can't even remember what happened because they're not paying attention to it. Um, and when you choke, you experience the opposite. So how do you, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of the Heimlich, like how, how do you self-correct here? When you, when you feel that starting to happen, it's, it's very easy to, you know, hey, focus on this, but it, it, it seems to me it's instinctively harder to say don't focus on something. Um, it's really hard. And actually, there's psychological research showing that when you say don't focus on something, don't think about a white elephant, now all of a sudden you're thinking about it, right? So it's, it's very hard, right? So the idea is, though, that we can practice what we're, what's happening in our head just like we can practice our body. Um, and a lot of it is getting control of where we focus our attention. So um, athletes, for example, focusing on 
a mantra or a keyword or where you want the ball to land rather than um, what's happening with your elbow or even what's on the line for if you lose, something that takes your mind off of, of what you're doing. Um, we've, I've heard professional athletes talking about having a swing thought or looking, trying to read the ball or even singing a song, something that gets you out of your own head in a way. And that's true for many different tasks. You know, the worst time I would say to cram for a test or to be looking at every detail of your speech is right before. You know, you almost want to distract yourself. You want to take yourself out. It's really interesting. I don't know if you, you caught this with the woman's finalist, Victoria Azarenko. She was playing Serena Williams and she's, she goes to her chair and somebody after the match said, what were you, you know, you're going to serve for this big match. It's uh, serving for the final. What were you thinking about? And she, she said nothing. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like you buy it. It sounds yeah. like uh, you like that. I love that, right? Um, and that's, and I actually, it was interesting to watch even before the matches, they're doing these little interviews, kind of social distance interviews. Right. And I, I actually, I feel my, this was my interpretation is that athletes don't want to be talking about what they're doing then. Like it's the exactly worst thing to do right then is to get them sort of overthinking what's going on. And they all look impatient. They don't want to be there. It's like, obviously not where they want to be. And they give kind of Serena, I remember in the, in the semifinals give this very high level answer, right? And I'm just, you know, I'm happy to be here. They don't, this is like the worst thing that you could be asking them to do at this moment. Just to, to start deconstructing their performance right, yeah, before, right before they play. <laughs> I mean, I understand the way the fans, everyone wants to hear from them, but I, I could feel their pain. <laughs> uh, no, those, those things are excruciating. I think exactly, yeah, it's the last thing you want to, tell me about the test you're about to take. It's, it's not uh, where you want to yeah, be. Yeah, or tell me exactly how you're, move, you're changing, you changed your ground stroke. Like, this is <laughs> not what you want them to be thinking about right before they go in. And you want them... I mean, it's, you know, if I was coaching one of them or talking to one of them, I'd say, okay, you, you, the Open has asked you to do this. It's really important to connect with your fans. So talk about, you know, how happy you are to be there or something at a high level. This doesn't have to be about your game at this point. Right. Um, you know, there, there's a big debate, as I'm sure you know, in, in sports about clutch and whether you can quantify it. I feel like with choking, I mean, you, you, you sort of know it when you see it. And, and the players yesterday even both sort of conceded, yes, nerves played a huge role here. But as a, as a cognitive scientist, is there data? I mean, is there anything empirical that you rely on? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you know, I do some of my work in a lab. So I bring professional golfers or others in and I try and get them to choke, right? Um, so you can use, um, you can actually do this in a lab, which is why it's interesting to study. But of course, you can look individually um, at how people, for example, played in matches that where everything was on the line. You can look at teams, right? There's, um, you know, lore of the English uh, soccer team and their penalty kicks. There are certain things that you can look at to quantify it. And, um, you know, we can, we can all have arguments. And in Choke, my book, I talk about, you know, arguments over the greatest choking moments um in in history but there are certainly ways to look at this and that's one of the interesting things um about i think about sports right and it's often easier to quantify in um a sport like swimming right where you could look at someone's times in the olympics versus the trials or the olympics versus practice mm -hmm. um but it, it becomes harder when you're playing against someone else but certainly we all know it when we see it right um i mean in the book too you realize i mean there's there's fMRI data that you uh, you rely on where's the technology now in terms of sort of the 
the biology, the biochemistry that you study? Yeah, I mean, so we use several different techniques. You know, we have a putting green in our lab where we bring people in, but we also use uh, neuroimaging. Um, you're lying in it. It's really a big magnet. That's what it is. And it measures the magnetic properties inside your head. And you can use that technology to infer which areas of the brain are working the hardest. Um, unfortunately, it's a big magnet. You can't move. So you can't have people swinging golf clubs in there, um, but you can certainly have them imaging or imagining what they're doing. Um, and we've done a lot of work where we have people choke and things where you don't have to move like taking a math test. Um, and so it's interesting because some, a lot of what we've shown in our research is that you can see areas of the brain that are involved in like our neural pain response, right? So these are the areas of the brain that get pricked with the needle, that go off when you get pricked with the needle in your finger or stub your toe. And one of the interesting things that we see is that it's not, these areas aren't reacting necessarily when people are in the middle of what they're doing in the moment, it's right before, right? And so this goes back to what you're, how you're controlling your thoughts right before you go into a point or before the match really matters. Right. So it, it struck me with, without fans, it's a great laboratory for those of us who, uh, who are interested in this kind of thing. So what, interesting. Um, so what, I mean, it's, it's interesting in, because I, I think there's sort of a counter argument for every instinct, right? I mean, on the one hand, it must be really hollow and weird and no energy. On the other hand, maybe for some players, it alleviates pressure. What, what do you make of these athletes accustomed to playing in front of huge crowds, suddenly playing in front of 11 people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And let me say there's like, I don't think there's like one rubric for choking. I mean, if there was one rubric, we'd be able to deal with it, right? The thing is, it's so individualized. For you, you know, for me, giving a talk in front of my mom is really scary. I'm not sure you would care if my mom was there, right? Um, so it really matters uh, for in an individual way. And I think this is true here too. And also the sort of tips and techniques that I give are also individualized. You have like a toolbox, right? So it's not one size fits all. Uh, what I will say is these athletes have selected into succeeding at these high levels when people are watching them. So they're used to playing and playing at their top in front of fans. Um, and so I think, you know, we've seen, it'll be interesting to look across sports. Um, you know, we don't just have tennis to look at. We have hockey and baseball and um, others to, if we can, I'd love to try and quantify, right? Just that these athletes at the highest level, are we seeing more unforced errors or, um, you know, missed field goals, things that we can quantify as choking when the situation, the environment around has changed. And what I would argue is that one thing it likely, likely does is sort of prompt you to focus more on yourself. Um, right. And that's not so great all the time. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, which, which way does that cut? <laughs> uh, given everything you've, uh, given everything you've said, which way does yeah. that cut? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, the, I mean, you've talked a lot about uh, the disqualification from um, from Novak, and and um, you know, it's interesting to think about. I actually think it's like an action slip, which is something that happens when you're not paying, when you're in a distracted environment, when it's not as usual as what you would do. It's like how you sometimes need to drive to the grocery store and you drive to work. Right. Uh, wait, I, I'm glad you brought him up. I, I got one for uh, I got one on Novak for you. Um, so one of the theories with Novak, and I, and I don't know how sort of a, but closely you've been following this, but it's, it's been a controversial offseason for him, and he started this sort of quasi-players union, and he's trying to get his reputation back after this 
debacle of, of a tour that was a super spreader event. And so one of the theories was he's got too much on his plate. He's got too much on his mind. And this was the consequence. Um, do you, I'm, I'm sort of leading the witness here, but, but do you buy that? I mean, I think that, first of all, distractions and stresses off the court can seep in on the court and in sport. Like, there's no question that that's the case. And actually, one of my favorite studies is, uh, I think that really underscores this, is um, an experiment that was done with Cornell medical students who were studying for their boards. They were getting ready for to take their medical boards, which is really stressful, right? Um, and researchers, neuroscientists had them in a brain scanner just doing some simple creativity tasks, reasoning tasks. It had nothing to do with the boards. And they looked at people getting ready for the boards and people who were matched for age and sleep and everything, but who just weren't studying for the boards. And what they showed is that when the students that were under the stress of getting ready for the boards, they actually um, were not as um, sharp in terms of thinking and reasoning and being able to be flexible in a split second. Um, and, it, and then a month after the boards, they were back, right? So this idea that, that just a general stress can seep in and affect you, I think is really true. Um, so there's no question that's the case. But I think one other thing that I would add to here is that when there's, he probably hits the ball against the wall a lot in practice, right? And when there's no fans, it's like a cue, you know, that you don't have to be as attentive to that sort of thing. And so, you know, I think it was just like an automatic response. That's, that's my interpretation of it. An automatic response that might not have happened had the cues around him been different with everyone screaming. Because he's just, which what means though, is that you have to, you have to change how you practice. Because you can't do it in practice because it could happen when no one's there. Oh, that's really interesting. This goes back to what you're saying about sort of simulation and, and replication. Um, you wrote, um, I, I, think it was, I think it was two years ago, you wrote a terrific piece about Serena Williams and motherhood and I, I was thinking that in, I don't know if you in this tournament there, there were nine mothers I loved it. I loved and it. one of them was the doubles champion and Azarenka <laughs> came within a few games of winning the women's title and Serena made the semis um and you you well I'll let you say I mean you you do a lot of work in terms of, of gender bias to begin with but what, what's your take on this um the sort of flux of motherhood in, in women's tennis first of all I think it's seeing people in the roles that you want to be in is so important. So having Serena be so front and center with being a mother sort of signifies that this is okay and it's acceptable. And it's one of the reasons that we talk a lot about diversity and representation because there's all this research showing that when you see people who are like you, you think you can do it. You're more likely to think. And a lack of that representation matters too. But I really think about this from a psychological perspective of having and holding multiple identities um, it's healthy to do that, right? So I'm a scientist self, I'm a president, I'm a mother self. When I have a bad day in one, I can buffer myself by going and, you know, living in that other one. Like sometimes I'll go home and hug my daughter or if I like, you know, run over my daughter's whole Lego castles, I'm running to work and I have a good day at work, I don't feel like such a bad mother. And the idea is that having these multiple aspects of yourself almost makes it okay to, to, to not have a great day in one. I think it takes the pressure off. I think what it does is allows these women to compete and, you know, they're doing so many things. We're all kind of in awe of what they're doing. And I do actually think that it's maybe not an explicit strategy of Serena's, but it's certainly helpful in that highlighting these different aspects of herself makes it um, clear that, um, you know, not doing everything she would want or need to do in one doesn't mean that she's not just as successful. That if you're not 
self-identifying solely as an athlete it may actually help yeah, you. Yeah, and I, I actually think I, I wrote a piece um, earlier um, last month for USA Today also about the negative consequences of this on the other side. So like when college football, where many of the leagues decided not to play, I mean, oftentimes these athletes have only identified as football players. And now there's a real there's a real responsibility, I think, for university leaders and coaches to help these athletes diversify their identities, right? So what are they doing when they're not practicing and playing? Are they tutoring young kids in the area? Are they thinking about taking a class that they might not have wanted or been able or had time to take? What are the active ways in which coaches and mentors and leaders are helping to support these athletes? Because having these multiple identities is actually really important for mental health. Right, and and we know this is a huge issue. It's a it's a sense of loss and grieving to not have the opportunities that they expected to have. I think that I mean the the, the mental health dimension to this whole COVID shutdown. With you asking an athlete, said I'm a, I'm a competitor. Well, suddenly you, you can't compete for six months. Well, what are you then? Yeah, and how do you deal with your self worth? Right, a lot of this is thinking about the qualities that you value in yourself. These multiple identities are not just identities, but I would guess. I'd, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that Serena really values being a mom, right? It's, it's really important to her. So it could be, it doesn't have to be big things. You know, you could value being a good friend or a good cook, or maybe you're going to run, you're going to work on your 800, like anything that sort of allows you to channel that energy to something else. And I think a lot of us in COVID are, are thinking about that and reassessing, right? So, um, and, and having some control, how do you, how do you have control over different aspects of what you do? And this is all so important for mental health. Um, something I remember you wrote about it in Choke, I, I think it was with respect to, uh, to girls in STEM. And, and no, one, no one would ever say, I'm a bad reader, but somehow it's acceptable to say I'm not good at math. And you, you said, you know, stereotypes matter, reputations matter. Um, I, I wonder if we transpose that to sports, um, how does an athlete sort of lose the label of this person is a choker? Right. Well, first of all, I don't think you're born a choker or a thriver, and I think you certainly can change it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's also, but it's, there's no question that that stereotype or that belief, and especially if you hold the belief, right? Um, and even if you don't hold the beliefs, if you're an athlete and worried that someone else holds the belief, that can be enough, right? And so I think it is working with particular athletes to have them focus on um, examples where they have succeeded or to get them to change that narrative. And it's cognitive work, it might not happen once. So there's a great study with uh, Canadian Olympic swimmers where they had them actually watch themselves choking in the Olympics, which is on while they scan their brains, like, you know, everyone always like thinks that's, you know, they, they ooh, like yes, it's horrible, but you know, it's in the name of science and they're athletes, they're tough. But what they found is that these ne these negative emotional areas of the brain were really active when they were watching these failures. That's not so surprising. So you could imagine that every time an athlete thinks back to that, this sort of they're they're embodying these negative emotions. But the interesting thing is that they had these swimmers work every day on re-interpreting um, their failure. So rather than like they let down their country and their whole world, like what did they do wrong and what can they change? What are they able to control the next? And they have them rethink. It's like a, a, it's an aspect of mental training, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, and when they had them, some of them do that and they scan their brains again, they showed that there was less of this negative emotional activity, right? So the idea is that you can train your brain just like you're training your body and you have to reassess. And that reassessment really matters. We've done work where we show that if you can get a kid before they take a test to interpret their bodily signs and symptoms, the sweating palms and, and beating heart as a sign they're about to succeed because the heart is shunting blood to the brain so they can think versus you say, hey, I can see that, you know, you look a little nervous, good luck. Just having them reinterpret that this is a sign you're there, ready to go, it's an excitement. They do better on the test. Like how we think about ourselves and what we're gonna do really matters. Okay, so keep, so keep going with that. Um, I mean, the, the good thing about tennis is that you, you get four of these big chances every year. It's not the Olympic cycle. And there was a player who Sunday, Zverev had he was serving at 5-3 to win his first major and your topic of uh, study kicks in. Um, what, what do you tell him going forward? I mean, if, you, if you're his sports psychologist and he's coming off of this devastating loss, what do you tell him when there's another opportunity two weeks from now? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, I'd want to understand a little bit more about what happened, right, what he was thinking about. Um, you know, it's, but I'd also start looking at all the other times he succeeded um, and even getting to this point, right? So it's in front of lots of eyes, but getting to the finals is not choking, right? Um, and so how do you use that and how do you reinterpret this, this one as one sort of blip on a larger um, sort of screen of, of his tennis success? Uh, and I think, you know, um, there's a lot of pressure when you're at a finals like this, when you're the first, you know, person of your um, country to be there in a long time. That's certainly there, but now he knows he can do it, right? And so um, I'd start having them think about that and really take the focus off this one. But it's hard because recent things ring true. So I'd give it a couple weeks too. Um, the recency effect is getting, um, this, this, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so, I, A, I'm so happy we were able to do this finally. Um, yeah, me too. B, I'm I, a big fan. <laughs> I think it's, uh, no, likewise. And I, I think it's awesome. You are the president of a, uh, of a major university and you're, uh, you're, you're still active in sports. I, I think this is great that you, uh, <laughs> pursue this. Um, well, I, I mean, I love athletics. I think it's so important to, to everything that I've become and, um, you know, our women at Barnard play um, with Columbia on, um, and in the, the Ivy League. So it's great. I get to, to have Division One athletes on, on my campus and um, really watch them succeed in academics and in athletics. You've got all these laboratories. Uh, yes, many laboratories to look at. <laughs> um, this was awesome. I'm so happy we, were, uh, we could finally do this. And uh, let's, let's, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, nice to see you. All right. Thanks to Dr. Bylock. That will uh, do it for that week. I thought that was a great conversation. Both uh, both Dr. Bylock and our men's winner, Dominic Team. Congrats to him. He is not playing Rome, but now he goes to France as a major champion. So thanks to our two guests. Uh, good show this week. Thanks to the guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks to you. Thanks to Jamie for her producer wizardry. If you like this podcast, subscribe, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever. Uh, we'll have another guest next week. Man, I'm just realizing we will probably have a French Open preview show next week. Our crazy tennis calendar uh, strikes again. So we will have something next week. 
as tennis rolls on. Uh, meanwhile, that will do it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, see you in seven days. Thank you.